from KBMR in Nevada City and in partnership with Freed, welcome to Disability Wrap. I'm Anna Acton with my co-host Carl Sigmund. We spend today's show with Dan Oakenfest, Public Policy Manager at the California Foundation for Independent Living Centers. In his post at CFILC, Dan advocates for the rights and increased supports and freedoms of people with disabilities in the state. Dan has an extensive background in public policy work. Both here in California and in our nation's capital. He has worked for at least six California Assembly members. Early in his career, Dan was a legislative aide. To U.S. Congressman David Mann of Ohio. Dan has achondroplasia, which is the most common form of dwarfism. He is a lifelong member of Little People of America and has served as National Vice President of Public Affairs and a Chapter President for that organization. His wife, Erica, is also is also a little person. They have two remarkable children. And I say remarkable. Because as we were doing research for this show, at least half of the articles we read were about their sons. Hi and Jude. And only mentioned Dan as their proud father. So Dan. That proud father of Hai and Jude. Welcome to Disability Rap. Thank you very much. Uh, it is uh, great to be here. It's true. Yeah, I am my, my son's uh, publicist. Uh, 
We will get into more of the politics of the day in a bit. And of course talk about your kids as well. But before that... Tell us how you got into politics. Take us back to a young Dan Take us back to a young Dan Oakenfoss. I was really interested in going into the, the foreign service and had dreams of being a diplomat. Um, that is a really tough field to get into. There's an exam uh, to uh break into that, um, that, that career, and it's very, very competitive. Uh, after a couple times of trying and not getting into uh, the exam, I um, went back to Cincinnati, my home, and tried to figure out, okay, well, not much diplomacy options here in the heartland, um, so what else can I do? And then I was with my mother, and she took me to her neighborhood uh, township meeting. There was a candidate for Congress, who was speaking to the uh, trustees and the and the um, uh, residents uh, by a guy named David Mann. He was a city councilman uh, in Cincinnati and he was announcing his run for Congress. So I decided, well, um, maybe while I'm looking for something permanent, I could you know volunteer to be on his campaign. So I started there and he won election to Congress. Uh, and then, um, he asked me to join his staff in Washington D.C. at the Capitol, and so that's where it all—that's where it all began. Wow, career got going. I did stay in Washington, and I started working for a business trade association. About five years into that job, was you know busy. You know, we were doing uh, some conferences, and just happened to be a conference uh, of Little People of America that uh, was happening in suburban Virginia, and met a. Um, uh, person there um, named Erica. She's from California and visiting her friends at the conference. And she's also there for a genetics conference. She's a genetic counselor. So started talking. Uh, we did, uh, you know, transcontinental dating, um, which is uh, really hard. Uh, it's from, you know, Washington, D.C. to San Francisco. Um, and that's a lot of travel. And then about a year of that, I decided to uh, move to Sacramento. And then uh, found a job uh, working in the state capitol. Um, you know, gosh, there's so so many different directions we can go with. The very interesting story that I'd like to dig into uh, more. But I'd like to just ask, what can, tell us about Little People of America for the listeners out there who are not aware of what it is and what it does. From birth, you know, I was uh, diagnosed with dwarfism and I have achondroplasia. And there's been tons of research on forms of dwarfism and how they affect people and, you know, medically and emotionally. Little People of America was an organization created uh, from that need back in 1957. Uh, there was an actor, uh, a vaudeville stage um, um, actor by the name of Billy Barty from uh, California. And he gathered some of his friends who had dwarfism uh, for a uh, kind of a social gathering. Uh, and then from that meeting in Reno, Nevada, I believe, in 1957, uh, came uh, Little People of America. 
And from the start, it's always been kind of a, um, a forum or a, um, kind of a self-help organization for people with dwarfism, but there's much more to that now. Today, uh, there are over 8,000 members. Uh, we were hosting the National Conference in San Francisco in 2004, and so that was a great opportunity to uh, meet with um, um, outside vendors and media who wanted to learn more about LPA, and that became a subject of lots more, a lot of documentaries and uh, reality shows, kind of from that um, contact we had back then. Um, now a day goes by on the Learning Channel where you can catch a uh, show about little people. You know, you mentioned media, and I'm just curious your take. How has media portrayal of little people changed over time? Has that been something you've discussed at Little People of America? Yeah, um, there was a while where we hosted a um, uh, annual workshop during our conference uh, about you know little people portrayals in the media, and we've seen a lot of uh, positive uh, exposure. Um, since you know the founding of the organization um, back in you know the earlier part of the 20th century uh, people with dwarfism and other you know skeletal dysplasia forms you know were kind of treated uh, horribly as you know sideshows and uh, objects of uh, ridicule and such um, you see people with dwarfism performing in circuses or being kind of you know wrapped up and exploited in that industry and then with television um, Again, you were seeing people uh, with dwarfism in kind of you know, various roles, most of them demeaning or uh, like the sidekick of jokes. And because it was for the producers, it was funny to see uh, people with dwarfism kind of on shows. Um, a lot of that then became um, uh, very derogatory. You had um, people with dwarfism called midgets. We called the M word. And it kind of, you know, and I think P.T. Barnum and the circus um, organizers always had, you know, use that word to kind of, you know, uh, describe uh, people with dwarfism on their shows. And it was very demeaning and kind of, you know, subhuman. Um, he didn't really get a lot of respect. Um, probably until like the 50s and 60s, then you're starting to see some changes. I think it helped with uh, LPA and, and um, part of the origins of LPA was to, you know, fight those stereotypes and actually show to the world that we are not just actors. Uh, we also have, you know, various, you know, professions like any others and like any other organizations. And that, and that evolved over time um, into the, you know, 1970s, you know, with uh, the rise of um, um, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and um, 504 and uh, there were actually members of, of uh, our community that were involved in a lot of those uh, pioneer days of uh, the movement. So from there, um, advocacy for accessibility uh, in public buildings, you know, then moving on to the ADA and then even after that, there's been many other uh, victories as to you know, working with um, um, guidelines for minimum height requirements, minimum reach requirements uh, that allows people with dwarfism to you know, you know reach everything from you know elevator buttons to door handles to um, the chip readers on gas pumps. So uh, a lot of that came from uh, uh, a lot of uh, advocates in our organization working in coalition with um, other display groups around the country. It's great to be part of the organization. You know, I've met you know my wife through it, and then we get to we'll get to the fun part, um, the how we uh, got our family when we're when you're ready to get into that question. Yeah, 
Why don't we go there? Yeah, why don't we go there now? It is a perfect segue. LPA for the last, I think, 10, maybe about 15, 20 years has had a very um, intense, um, a very rigorous uh, adoption program. And it started um, when there was a need for various children who uh, from other countries who were born with dwarfism. And also, thanks to the internet, uh, with, that, with that blossoming, there was a lot of better outreach and contact um, to try to find you know, forever homes for uh, these children. And when my wife and I got married, um, we were thinking about having children um, and um, we're thinking of, wow, there's, you know, there's a, um, it's a risk uh, for two parents with uh, achondroplasia. Um, medically, and my wife was, you know, good practitioner of genetics, um, said there's, you know, a chance, um, there's a 50% chance that you're a child born of two um, parents with dwarfism could you know, have dwarfism itself. A 25% chance that uh, the child could uh, be average height, you know, with no dwarfism conditions. And there's a 25% chance a child could get uh, what we call double dominance, uh, which is when the two dominant genes are passed on instead of the dominant recessive combinations. Um, and then that leads to um, um, stillbirth. Um, child doesn't really live much longer, you know, other than a few hours uh, due to underdeveloped organs. So we were interested in LPA's adoption program. We met with um, an adoption coordinator and we also uh, worked with an agency in California to get our home study um, to which was acquired in order to get an adoption match. Um, and then um, what happens is you're put on a kind of like a, a waiting list and uh, a child will come up on the LPA's radar screen from uh, another country, from another adoption agency. And um, then the coordinator then asks, you know, the family that's top on the list, you know, we have this uh, case file here of this child. Um, and would you like to pursue or um, pass? And so um, over about a year waiting, um, all of a sudden it was our turn at the top of the stack. Um, and then, um, um, boy from Vietnam, he was about a year old and he, you know, just, you know, fell in love with him from the beginning. And so we started the process and took about a year to, uh, bring him home. And about a year later, a year or two later, um, we were, think we we're fine with one child. Um, so we thought, uh, and then, Hey, there's a, a child with dwarfism from Korea that is uh, uh, just made available. So the second child uh, was in Seoul, Korea, and he also has, you know, achondroplasia. And um, his situation was a little bit different. His uh, mother didn't um, feel that she could um, um, handle being a parent. And so shortly after birth, uh, just, you know, put him into uh, the foster care system uh, in Korea. And then he waited, he was in a, not in an orphanage itself, but actually in a home bonding with a foster mom and family. So that was a you know, different kind of um, upbringing. So uh, by the time we met him, he was um, 11, no, 14 months um, and we were able to bring him home. So that was in 2011, that was 10 years ago. And um, they are great, wonderful children and they're learning from uh, 
the two of us and from our network of uh, friends and LPA and they have bonded with us so many others in their our neighborhood and our community. They are all so they are also world famous athletes. Can you tell us a bit can you tell us a bit about that? And how they got into sports? The LPA has a wonderful um, kind of a partner organization called DAAA, the uh, Dwarf Athletic Association of America. And during every uh, national conference of LPA, um, there are a number of uh, sports uh, athletics competitions that go on side by side. And so from early years of them coming to our conferences, they uh, got hooked on to the DAAA uh, competitions. So um, the pinnacle of uh, their involvement in uh, LPA and DAAA uh, happened uh, uh, four years ago when the next round of the World Dwarf Games happened. And that was being held in Guelph, which is a uh, kind of university town outside of Toronto, Canada. And they got to represent the United States, um, my boys, uh, in the youth uh, levels of, the, uh, of their sports. And and our listeners can go to our website free.org slash disability rap where we have a link to an amazing video of your whole family. Dan, you and I are on Zoom meetings. Just about every week. Talking about all kinds of different policies. Mainly in Sacramento. But also in Washington. So, I want to hit on a couple of policy points real quick. The first is long-term services and supports. When I started uh, with um, CFILC, it was right in January, right as bills were being introduced. And we identified uh, about a dozen or so bills that were of interest that we wanted to be involved in, uh, involved in meaning uh, actually championing them through the process. So uh, top on the list, as you mentioned, was um, uh, long-term services and supports legislation. We worked on two bills with uh, 
Dr. Pan, who's the state senator um, from the Sacramento area, and with uh, Assemblymember Adrian Nazarian, who's from the San Fernando Valley. And there were two bills that would create a long-term services and supports uh, board that would be uh, operate out of um, the treasurer's office to administer the kind of create a foundation and administer uh, the appropriation that would eventually come to finance uh, a long-term services and supports benefit through uh, Medi-Cal. So two bills were uh, introduced. They were um, uh, AB 911 and SB 515. Um, and then uh, working with uh, author's offices, um, we were first moving to just carry the original PAN bill. Then we decided to um, create a study of the issue to kind of examine you know the costs what a benefit would look like uh, who would run it so i think it was uh we're working department of aging and others to kind of um uh get that going so the goal is to uh get back together with all the advocates uh and they come from um uh, uh advocates in other disability rights organizations and from the uh uh, aging long-term care communities plus the um, uh, labor uh, organizations that support those workers that are in these fields. Um, this coalition has agreed to kind of work over the in the uh, interim which is the time between the two years uh, session so later this fall uh, and winter and then get something ready for um, early 2022. Kind of a lot of our work was focused on those bills here but that doesn't mean you know you know that's it. There's the, there's the show must go on, and there's still uh, plenty of other issues that I've learned that uh, the independent living community uh, need to have their voices uh, heard. And we've been dealing with a very timely bill uh, involving hate crimes. Um, it's been a you know, unfortunately a, a issue. It's been on the rise uh, across the country and within our state. Um, that's AB 57 by Assembly Member Gabriel. Um, expands the definition of hate crimes to also include uh, crimes uh, with people with disabilities. Um, we're also looking at uh, a good, good civil rights issue that has really you know, come to bear, which is very important for everyone. And that's the SB 639 by Senator Durazo. Um, there is a um, federal license you can get to run a business that will pay people with disabilities below minimum wage. And it's um, something we want to see phased out because for a variety of reasons, it's very discriminatory. It's very unfair um, there. And how this exists, uh, it's, you know, been trying to, they've been trying to address this for a number of years. This year, they have a bill that will phase out that license, uh, suspend people, suspend companies from getting a license to pay subminimum wage uh, and then um, transitioning those that already have current licenses to phase out. I want to just say that there is a push at the president. I want to just say that there is a push at the federal level to do away with to do away with subminimum wage as well.
It was a campaign promise of President Biden. Then you take um Biden home and come with Dan, your take on Biden's home and community-based services infrastructure proposal. Um, I don't think we've uh, seen an administration, you know, really devote a lot of energy towards this issue um, in maybe our generation here. And it is great to see that this administration take on the big issues. You know, there's everyone talks about infrastructure and, you know, buildings and bridges and such like, but there's so much infrastructure that's needed within our homes and taking care of our family members and our loved ones. And this can only be a, um, it's a great start. And I, and 400 billion is a massive number here. And I would love to see this uh, get through. And I think uh, the Biden administration knows it has a kind of a limited time frame to get a lot of these proposals through this year and next year. Um, while there's a, control of uh, the House and the uh, Senate. And I think this is the, the, it's great to see an ambitious administration. And I think it's an issue that affects, you know, all families. We all have um, family members in need of um, uh, these uh, LTSS uh, supports and services. Yeah, one more Just one more last question. Stepping back a minute out of the weeds. You've worked as a legislative staffer. You are You are also a lobbyist now. What advice do you have for advocates of What advice do you have for advocates of any issue? But particularly folks advocating for the rights of people with disabilities. Whether we are advocating in Sacramento. Or with our members of Congress. Or even at a local level. What advice do you What advice do you have? It is um, so rewarding as a uh, legislative staff to see you know people come in to visit with your legislator and and coworkers on any issue. And my advice is um, always come in uh, in these meetings um, with a specific ask. Uh, and what I mean is. 
Um, it's one thing to educate you know, members of uh, the legislature and their staff about you know who we are and what our main issues are, but when it comes down to their attention span, I mean the legislature's attention span, there there are thousands of bills introduced every session. What makes yours special? What makes your um, cause special? And so to connect it to um, something that's going on in the legislature's district um, or something that impacts um, um, uh, the constituents. Um, and then and what it means to them. I think if you are specific and I want your support on SB 639 to eliminate the uh, subminimum wage um, and then um, not just the delivery of that message but also the follow-up too is essential. So right now we're seeing bills come through all the policy committees but in about a month uh, towards the end of uh, May, early June, you're going to see all these bills being taken up by the assembly and senate floors, the full uh, bodies. There are 80 assembly members and 40 senators. Um, and that is an opportunity to go back to those legislators that you met with to remind them, hey, AB, SB 639 is coming up on the floor today. It'd be great if you could speak a, a sentence or so uh, uh, in, in what we talked to you about. So making those connections are key. The follow-up is key. And then always you know, telling them the success stories. When a bill you pushed for got signed by the governor, it's always great to uh, come back and say, hey, um, assembly member and senator, thank you so much for getting us through. This means a lot to us. That was Dan Okenfest, Public Policy Manager at the California Foundation for Independent Living Centers. You can sign up for his monthly newsletter, Capital Connections, at cfilc.org. This show is produced and edited by my co-host, Carl Sigmund. Special thanks to Courtney Williams for her support. To listen to the show again, go to free.org slash disabilityrock or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anna Acton with Carl Sigmund for another edition of Disability Rock. Disability Rock.